0: We welcome you today. If you're visiting with us, we uh, we're so glad that you're here. Um, and uh, if you happen to if you happen to be new visiting with us today, or you missed last week's message, um, allow me to uh, very quickly bring you up to speed. Um, there's a missionary team together uh, in. Um, Philippi in Macedonia, the Apostle Paul, uh, who was once a persecutor of the church, who had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ uh, that entirely transformed his life. Uh, another man named Silas, who was a prophet. Um, a guy named Luke, who happened to be a physician, is also part of this missionary team, and he's uh, narrating this entire saga for us through the Acts of the Apostles, and then uh, a young protege of Paul's, whose name is Timothy, uh, four men on a missionary team, and they're in the city of Philippi, which is in Macedonia. Macedonia is what is now northern Greece, and uh, while they were in the port city of Troas, uh, which was to the east across the Aegean Sea on the west coast of what is now Turkey, Um, the Apostle Paul had a vision in the night, uh, a a dream, I would guess, in which he saw a man from Macedonia standing and calling out to him, urging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. The uh, missionary team had been a little puzzled about what it was that God had for them next. Paul went and shared this vision with his team, um... Consulted together, together they concluded that it was the call of God, and uh, and so they got on a ship, they sailed westward across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia, and uh, from the city of Neapolis made their way inland to the city of Philippi. And while they were there, Paul and his team met a slave girl who was possessed by a demon that enabled her to tell fortunes. She earned a great deal of her, of money for her owners, and this slave girl and her um, and her demon <laughs> joined Paul and company and followed them around as they attempted to evangelize the city of Philippi. And uh, Luke tells us she followed them for many days. And as she did, she incessantly cried out, These men are servants of the Most High God who have come to show us the way of salvation. Eventually, Paul became deeply affected Grieved, annoyed, uh, not only at what she was shouting, but also, I think, at the plight of this young girl. Uh, I've reflected a lot this week on who this young girl might have been. The language that Luke uses here in the Greek uh, original Greek is uh, indicates that she was probably a young teenager. Uh, we observed last week that she was twice enslaved, once to her slave masters, um, but also uh, enslaved to the demon that lived in her, spoke through her, manipulated her, controlled her. And I think that her words and the frequency and the manner in which she spoke, those words became an annoyance to Luke and company, yes, for sure, but... I have to believe more deeply that the enslaved exploited condition of this young girl this young life grieved his heart uh, this girl was somebody's daughter she was somebody's sister perhaps and who knows how she ended up in slavery and who knows how she ended up possessed and controlled by a demon. But I have to believe that Luke's response was not just irritation, not just annoyance, but grief. And that's wrapped up in the word that Luke uses here, grief, over her condition. And so he turned to the demon. He commanded the demon in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her. And it did. She was delivered. From its control, became a follower of Jesus as, as we were singing that last song, I was thinking about this young girl. Uh, Once I was broken, but you loved my whole heart through. Sin has no hold on me. Your grace holds me now. Healed and forgiven. Looks where, look where my chains are now. And as consequence of that action, The girl's owners, her handlers, were, of course, deprived of the income that she had brought to them, and they were ticked. They were angry. And so they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them to the Agora, the marketplace, which was the public meeting place. They brought trumped-up accusations against them to the rulers of the city that, that these Jews were disrupting the city, that they were promoting, advocating customs illegal for Romans to practice. They were attacked by the crowd, they were stripped naked, Uh, Roman soldiers beat them with rods all over their bodies, brutally beat them, and then threw them into the prison in the most secure of cells with their feet fastened in stocks. And it's in that prison cell that we pick up the story today in Acts chapter 16, beginning of verse 25. Would you stand with me and let's read it as is our custom, read it aloud together. They encouraged them and departed. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, we, we kind of surf over the top, right? Have you had that experience. You just kind of surf over the story and say, nice story. Isn't that a nice story? And yet, sometimes when we do that, in fact, all the time when we do that, We miss out on what's really happening. There was a German theologian, a guy named Ernst Henschen, who referred to this entire episode in the passage we just read as a virtual nest of improbabilities. A virtual nest of improbabilities, hence our title this morning. And and he was right from a human perspective. Uh, It's not at all difficult to understand how improbable the entire story we just read together would appear to anyone who pays attention, and certainly to those who approach the Bible, with skepticism. That might be you this morning, and if if that describes you, welcome. (laughs) Glad to have skeptics always in the congregation. But those who view the Scriptures with the eyes of faith in a sovereign God, understand that what is improbable from a human perspective must ultimately give way to that which is entirely probable and expressly purposeful when viewed from the divine perspective. Let me just repeat that. Those who view the Scriptures with the eyes of faith in a sovereign God Understand that what is improbable from a human perspective must ultimately give way to that which is entirely probable and expressly purposeful when viewed from the divine perspective. This is written as a story. We're going to examine it as a story today. So let's walk through it together. In verse 25, we hear songs. We hear songs. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So let's call this what it is, improbable praise. Imagine, evening comes, not a glimmer of light from outside, pierces the darkness deep inside that jail. And as midnight approaches, unusual sounds are heard in the jail, unusual in the sense that instead of the usual cursing, Complaining and crying, and I'm using delicate words that came from the mouths and filled the ears of the inmates. These sounds are, in fact, songs of praise to God from from the cell uh, in in the deepest, most secure part of the prison. Joyful prayer and praise are bursting from the mouths of the two newest inmates, those Jewish guys in cell block D. And Paul and Silas could only imagine what might await them in the morning, but, but with bruised and, and lacerated backs, with aching limbs, perhaps some of them broken, I imagine their prayers, their songs must have focused on how thankful they really were for the Lord Jesus, that how he had suffered for them. They must have sung of God's love, his mercy, his grace, And the hope that was theirs because they had received Jesus as their Savior and given their lives to Him as their Lord. It was because of their hope of eternal life that they were able to praise God as they faced the prospect of of their own deaths or whatever may happen to them when the sun would rise in the morning. And no wonder then that that Luke makes note that, that the other prisoners were listening to them. You know, Judaism is rich with psalms and hymns that have accumulated for generations. The early church had written and formed some of their own hymns as well. The the words of so many of the psalms focus on responding in faith to suffering. Many were written from out of the depths of despair in circumstances when unless God intervened, unless God came through, unless God showed his strength on their behalf. All hope was lost. Maybe Paul and Silas sang a psalm like Psalm 27. At verses 12 to 14, the psalmist wrote, "'Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence.'" I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or perhaps they sang Psalm 71, which says in verses 12 to 16, O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Or maybe it wasn't even that formal. Jacob who's the pastor of Morningstar Christian Chapel in Southern California, who I would choose as my pastor if I lived in that area, suggested that maybe Paul and Silas were just singing, ain't it grand to be a Christian, you know? Ain't it grand to be a Christian, ain't it grand? Whatever they were singing, God was glorified in the jail that night. And their hearts and the hearts of the other inmates who heard them were lifted from the gloominess of their circumstances to the goodness of God expressed in His Son, Jesus Christ. They sang. They prayed. Job 35.10 tells us that God gives songs in the night. For a little while that night, the the prison became a church. The gospel was, was made known to each and every prisoner. Paul and Silas didn't waste even that opportunity. In verses 26 to 29, then we encounter a sequence of surprises. Surprises. Allow me to read that section for us again. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. What do you think? Improbable? Earthquake? Merely coincidental, or the direct, purposeful action of a sovereign God? You're reasonable, people. You decide. And as you're deciding, recall that there was also a major earthquake while Jesus hung on the cross outside of Jerusalem. Scripture records that that earthquake was so powerful that it opened the tombs in Jerusalem. Was that a coincidence? Or did the sovereign creator God send that earthquake? We've already seen two occasions when apostles were imprisoned and an angel broke them out. The first was in Acts 5 when an angel of the Lord came and opened the prison doors and brought Peter and John out, instructed them to go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. On the second occasion in chapter 12, Peter was imprisoned. He was sleeping between two Roman soldiers, two burly guards, chained on either side to each of them. And Luke says that uh, an angel came and stood next to Paul, or to Peter rather, on this occasion. And a light filled the prison cell. And the word that Luke uses says that, that the angel just whacked Peter out of a deep sleep. Just whacked him. And and in that moment, the, the chains fell off of Peter. Uh, the two Roman soldiers kept snoring. And the angel led Peter out of the prison, passed two other guards through a locked iron gate without anyone noticing his departure or detecting his absence. So perhaps the earthquake in Philippi that night wasn't so improbable after all. God seems to know how to break his people out of prison when he wants to. Hold that thought because it's past midnight and the jailer, himself having been shaken out of a deep sleep by the earthquake, begins to quake in terror as he sees that the doors to the prison are open and swinging on their hinges. And all he can assume is that most or all of his prisoners are now gone. Under Roman law, if a prisoner escaped the the one charged with guarding that prisoner was subject to the same punishment the prisoner would have received and so his horrifying realization in that moment is that their sudden freedom freedom, freedom easy for me to say their sudden freedom signalled his own imminent death so he draws his own sword uh, not wanting, you know, anticipating the, the kind of death that he probably would have died, he draws his own sword and chooses him instead to take his own life. When, when from the back of the prison he hears this voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. What? What? How is that possible? See, the most improbable thing at this point in the narrative was neither that an earthquake has occurred, nor that the earthquake was so severe that the doors were opened and the chains fell off the prisoners, as improbable as that sounds. The truly remarkable thing, the most improbable occurrence, was that not a single prisoner had escaped. More than that, not a single prisoner had even apparently attempted to escape. And that's incredible. And the question is forced upon us, why not? Think about it. We we could safely assume, couldn't we, that those incarcerated there had committed a, a broad range of crimes. It wasn't just Paul and Silas. But there were other people imprisoned there. They'd committed a broad range of crimes. What awaited each of them may have included beatings, flogging, scourging, other forms of torture. The Romans were good at it, even crucifixion or beheading. Why hadn't at least some of them seen the opportunity to flee and taken it? What could possibly motivate desperate men awaiting either trial or sentencing to remain in their cells of their own volition when freedom was in their grasp, when they might escape under cover of darkness? The circumstances scream the questions. Were they too frightened, too intimidated to run? Had they calculated the odds of of actual escape and concluded that success was unlikely? Or is it possible, is it possible that in the preceding hours the Holy Spirit had so worked in their hearts that to a man they had each believed in Jesus through the witness of Paul and Silas, had they each having believed, received the gift of salvation? Improbable? Possible? Possible? Was each of them now at such peace with God that they knew that whatever the sunrise might bring, whatever punishment they might face for their crimes, it was well with their souls. Because they had trusted in Christ, they had received God's gift of eternal life, and obviously we will not know the answers until we get to heaven. The verse 29 says that the jailer called for lights... When I first read this, I was envisioning him calling for a light because he needed a cigarette at that moment, right? Anybody got a light? He called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Improbable, no? I mean, the prison warden falling down, prostrating himself before his inmates. Why? Who was this man? An agent of the empire, a soldier, a man experienced in administering brutality, and so to his prisoners, not a friend, not a friend, only an adversary, but spiritually hungry and now in a state of desperation. See, his improbable action of falling down before Paul and Silas then triggered a series of improbable conversions through the remaining hours of the night. Beginning at verse 30, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And notice verse 30. He brought them out. The jailer, let's call him the prison warden, brought prisoners out of the jail, out of the prison. Improbable release, right? And then he asked the most improbable question of all, sirs. And sirs translates the word kurioi, which means lords. Having prostrated himself before them, he now humbles himself even further. Lords, what must I do to be saved? And again, we're forced to ask the question, why? Why? What might this man have known or understood of the message of the gospel? Had he been there in the streets as the demon-possessed girl shrieked that these men are servants of the Most High God who have come to show us the way of salvation? Or had he heard Paul and Silas proclaiming the message of the gospel on some occasion during their stay in the city? Or had he overheard what was going on that night in his jail and had the Holy Spirit so moved in his heart as he overheard them praying and praising God in his jail that he had heard the message of God's gift of forgiveness of sin, the hope of eternal life, and was strangely drawn to receive it himself. How was he able to form the words, What must I do to be saved? And again, the fact is that we'll never know this side of heaven. But we do know this, that God possesses unlimited means of drawing people to himself. Of drawing men and women to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. See, the the jailer's question reflected his religious predisposition as, as it does ours. His religion always asks, What must we do in order to be right with God? And every religious system is ready with its own set of answers. Good works, religious rituals, dietary restrictions, clothing requirements, prostrations, deprivations, flagellations, and the list goes on and on. Biblical Christianity, on the other hand, comes and turns all of that upside down. Biblical Christianity turns religion on its head. What is required for salvation is not what we must do. Instead, it is what Christ has already done. Everything that's necessary for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be reconciled to God, has been accomplished for us through his perfect life, his sacrificial death that paid our sin debt fully and finally, and his resurrection from the dead some people once asked jesus what must we do to be doing the works of god and jesus answered them this is the work of god to believe in him whom he has sent and the answer given to the jailer by paul and silas was simple direct and on point believe in the lord jesus christ and you will be saved you and your household it's possible that you came in this morning with the same question What must I do to enter into a right relationship with God? To be acceptable to God? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing more to be done. Simply believe in Jesus. Well, what does that mean? To believe in Jesus is a transfer of trust. Most of us have been conditioned to believe that what's required for our salvation is religion, religious affiliation, religious rituals, religious activity, good works, morality, and the list goes on. But to believe in Jesus is to take all of that and stack it in a pile and say goodbye to it. And transfer your confidence before God from all of that over to what Christ has already accomplished on your behalf at the cross through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Place all of your confidence on him and what he has done. The Apostle Paul would Later, write to the church in Rome, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now notice what happens next. Having answered his question, Luke tells us that Paul and Silas, at this point outside of the prison, spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And I take that to mean that that Paul took the opportunity to, to teach them more deeply the message of the gospel and its implications for those who believe. The jailer's personal faith was not sufficient for the other members of his household. Each of them individually received the message of the gospel and believed in Jesus for themselves. In verse 33, there's what I would call a reciprocal washing that takes place. The jailer in an improbable act, washes the wounds, improbable in those days, no no, no such thing as you know, prisoners' rights. The jailer washes the wounds of his two prisoners, and they in turn baptize him and his entire family, symbolizing the washing away of their sins. And one of the, the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, 4th century, observed, he washed them and was washed. Those he washed from their stripes, and he himself was washed from his sins. I like that. In verse 34, the jailer now invites Paul and Silas up into his house. (laughs) What prison guard does that? And feeds them uh, an improbable midnight snack. And it says he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And what happened next? They all joined hands, sang kumbaya, and sent Paul and Silas to freedom outside the city, right? Wrong. And we'd want it to be otherwise, right? We, we, we would want that to be kind of the end of the story. But the distinct impression that Luke gives us is that the jailer returned Paul and Silas to their prison cells because that's where they're found the next morning. Why did he do that? He was still accountable to the Philippian authorities. And there's no sense that, no indication that Paul and Silas protested that action. Seemed to have gone back willingly. And in verses 35 to 39, Paul and Silas staged what back in the in the days of the civil rights movement, in the 1960s and early 70s, came to be known as a sit-in. You guys remember sit-ins? Some of you do. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. See, apparently the the authorities, the magistrates, had had determined, concluded in their own minds, that a, a public beating, a night in prison, should have been adequate punishment and provided a sufficient deterrent to the continued activity of Paul and his team in their city so that they would have learned their lesson and left quietly. So as we read here, they sent word that they were to be released. The message was relayed to them by the jailer. Paul and Silas didn't see it quite that way. Today someone might describe it this way, that they played the citizenship card and insisted on their rights as Romans. Paul was a citizen of the empire by birth. According to Roman law, Roman citizens were exempted from any kind of degrading punishment such as they had received. No Roman citizen could be beaten or bound by a magistrate or by another person under any circumstances. And if threatened with any of the above, all a citizen had to say was, Civis Romanus Sum, I am a Roman. And all violence toward them would cease immediately. So a grave injustice had been done to Paul and Silas without trial, without due process. They had been publicly humiliated, severely beaten, and imprisoned. And the law required that the authorities who who allowed something like this to happen should face punishment themselves. And this explains why the magistrates were so afraid when they heard the news and realized that they had inflicted corporal punishment on a Roman citizen. And Paul said, I'm not moving. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not letting them shuttle us out of the city under the cover of night, quietly, without any public visibility. Let them come themselves and take us out. And as a result of his insistence, that's what happened. They received a formal apology and a personal escort by the magistrates themselves out of the jail with the request that they then leave the city, which they did. But first, verse 40 says, They went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Lydia had become very important to them. She had been their first convert in Philippi. Historians record Lydia as the first convert to Christianity on the European continent. She had housed them, she had provided for them, so of course they visited Lydia before parting. Probable they had to go back to her place anyway to gather whatever belongings they had left there. But I imagine that it was an emotional moment, an emotional scene, as they bid farewell to Lydia. But notice the second half of verse 40. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Well, who were the brothers? And this is kind of a newsflash because it seems that behind the scenes that Luke has portrayed for us, a thriving assembly of believers in Jesus was forming there in Philippi as the fruit of Paul and Silas' ministry. And Luke just hasn't introduced us to the rest of them. And it's kind of thrilling to realize that there was, in fact, a church for them to encourage on their way out of town. You might say, in light of all the adversity they had experienced in Philippi, that this was an improbable church. First Philippian church of improbability, right? See, if the businesswoman, though, Lydia, and the slave girl, whose name we don't know, and the jailer, whose name we don't know, are representative of the beginnings of the Philippian church, we would have to observe and acknowledge the, the profound dissimilarities between these three people. For example, consider the difference in their national or ethnic backgrounds. Lydia was a native of the Roman province of Asia On the other side of the Aegean Sea, what's now Turkey, we might presume that the slave girl was a resident of Macedonia, except for the fact that slaves were trafficked from all over the empire. The jailer was most likely a Roman soldier, whether retired or active duty, perhaps a Roman himself, an Italian. Although, again, the Roman military included men from all of the countries that that the Romans conquered. But here's what we can assume, I think, that that each of them was of a different ethnicity and brought up in diverse cultures. They they shared a political identity in the Roman Empire, but their deeper unity was found and experienced in Christ. We might also think of the differences in their socioeconomic backgrounds. Lydia, we know, was a, a wealthy woman A successful businesswoman who who owned her own large home seems to have been the head of her own household. A slave girl, on the other hand, came from the extreme other end of the socioeconomic scale, the other side of the tracks. She owned nothing, had known nothing but being owned. And everything she had previously earned had gone to her owner's. The jailer may have represented the middle class, neither rich nor poor. The examples of diversity in the Philippian church might have been extensive. Together, these new believers from starkly different ethnicities, different cultures, different walks of life formed a radical new community of believers in Jesus and found their unity in him. There's one last improbability represented here, which is, I think, the greatest improbability of all. And that is Paul's improbable choice of suffering. Suffering. See if it's true that Paul and Silas could have put a stop to the beating and imprisonment that they suffered by simply shouting, I'm a Roman then why didn't they? Why didn't they? And adding to the mystery is the fact that when we come to Acts 22, we will read of an occasion when Paul did that very thing when he was about to be flogged in Jerusalem and was immediately released. Why not here in Philippi? Recognizing that they could have identified as Roman citizens, but seemingly chose Not to reminds us of Jesus, of whom Isaiah said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah wrote those words 700 years before Christ, and, and as we read the account of Jesus, trial and sufferings in the Gospels, we know it came to pass. He opened not his mouth. We saw last week that as Paul wrote later to this church in Philippi, he expressed his personal goal in life, which included that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul grasped the necessity of being identified with Christ, not only in his victory and his glory, but also in his suffering. It's all true. But to which end did he make the improbable choice of suffering in Philippi rather than demanding his rights as a Roman citizen? pretty clear that Paul was not averse to suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the name of Jesus. But we can be equally confident that Paul did not embrace suffering just for the sake of suffering. There's no indication anywhere in the rest of the New Testament that Paul was self-destructive that he was masochistic, deriving some perverse pleasure out of pain. And someone might say, well, if he hadn't been in the jail, he wouldn't have led the jailer and his family to faith in Jesus. Well, that's true, but Paul wasn't all-knowing. He couldn't have predicted or anticipated any of the events of that night. We might inquire whether Paul and Silas saw themselves setting an example for those in Philippi who had believed in Jesus through their preaching and upon whom suffering, persecution, would inevitably come, or whether by their experience they might subsequently secure a measure of protection for the Philippian believers who might otherwise have suffered a backlash upon Paul's departure from the city. And each of those scenarios is speculative, of course. And the truth is that this is yet another question to ask of Paul and Silas someday in heaven. But what can we say when we remove all of the speculation and entrust ourselves only to what the Scriptures tell us? What we're actually able to observe taking place Because Paul and Silas on this occasion chose suffering. And I can think of only one thing. I can only see one thing in the text. And that is that they proved and demonstrated the presence of God with them in their suffering and in their imprisonment. Remember, God promised in Deuteronomy 38, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And, and, and through the said through the prophet Isaiah, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Promising his disciples the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit with them, Jesus had said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in the Great Commission, he promised, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The promises of his presence are replete in the pages of Scripture. Those promises are ours today. He is with us. He is in us. And he comes to us in extra measure in our time of need. See, to be improbable Christians is to choose that which glorifies him most in every situation, proving in both our successes and our sufferings his abiding presence. And you may be facing in your own life today, this week, this month, this year, adversity, opposition, suffering, at some level because of your faith in Christ, because you've chosen obedience to Jesus. And if that's you, then this sermon is for you. We, too, can sing songs in the darkest night. When we pass through the waters, when we walk through the fire, to our great God and Savior, acknowledging and celebrating His presence, His power, with us, in us. And through our rejoicing in the midst of suffering, giving thanks, not complaining, not crying, but expressing gratitude. We can make him known to those whom he draws near enough to hear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the lives of these men who entrusted themselves to you, not knowing what their suffering might lead to, but trusting in your plan and in your purpose and choosing to demonstrate in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of persecution and suffering, that you really are present, that you really are powerful that you really are a sovereign God. And thank you that because of Christ, in the midst of the most intense suffering, we have the hope of eternal life. Impress these things upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.